Welcome to the Yukon Internal Medicine Podcast. This is Alatur Shujan, your host and a chief medical resident at the University of Connecticut. A quick disclaimer before we start. All opinions and views expressed in our podcast are entirely the responsibility of the authors and do not represent the opinions of anyone else in the Yukon Department of Medicine. The content presented is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. We're back with this week's episode of Ambulatory Series, and today we will be discussing a med school staple, knee pain and how to work it up. As med students, we all learned how to do a detailed history and exam on a patient with knee pain. McMurray and Lachman, valgus, varus, stress, anterior and posterior drawer test, you know them all. Let's review everything you guys already know and see if I can teach you something new. When it comes to knee pain, history can clue you to the diagnosis even before you get to your physical exam, so don't rush through it. Ask your patient, when did the pain start? Was there an inciting event like a fall or injury? Does the pain change during the day? Does the knee lock or click? Locking of the knee would be highly suggestive of a meniscal injury. What makes it better or worse? Are there any other joints involved? If patient has other joint involvement, that may stir you in the direction of a systemic disorder such as rheumatological or crystalline disease, infection, or metastatic disease. If that's the trajectory your patient's history is taking, ask that they have any family history of autoimmune disease, any recent infections, STDs, or IV drug use. See if your patient has any history of eye redness, mouth ulcers, skin rash, or psoriasis that would also be highly suggestive of an autoimmune process. You also want to ask your patient for the exact location of the pain. It will help you further differentiate their knee pain. Whether the pain is diffused or localized is a helpful detail. If your patient's knee pain is posterior, think of a Baker cyst. If the pain is medial, possible differentials would include anserine bursitis, MCL injury, medial meniscus injury. If pain is lateral, think of IT band syndrome, LCL injury, lateral meniscus injury. Lastly, if pain is anterior, patellofemoral syndrome is on the differential. Ask your patient, is their knee stable? If it is not, cruciform ligaments such as ACL and PCL need to be examined. Another important question to ask would be whether they were recently on any antibiotics. As we all know, fluoroquinolones have a reputation for causing tendon ruptures. Ask your patient if they noticed any swelling or redness around their knee. If that's the case, see if they have any fevers, chills, sweating at night to further suggest an infectious process. Knee joint can be seeded from an infectious process elsewhere in the body, so make sure to collect history on any other infections that patients may currently have. Now that you've collected a detailed history, time to move on to the physical exam. Before you start, take note of patient's age. Age alone can help stratify your differential diagnoses. A patient who is older is more likely to have osteoarthritis whereas a younger patient is more likely to have knee pain from trauma or infection. Watch your patient walk, with support of course. Take note in any instability or guarding. 
with patient on exam table, examine for a limb length discrepancy, as that can affect the weight distribution on the knee with walking. Also examine the hip joints. Hip arthritis can present with a knee pain, as counterintuitive as that is. Look at your patient's feet for signs of pes planus, as that may predispose them for an abnormal gait and subsequent uneven wear and tear of the knee joints. Sometimes, checking their shoes can also give you clues to the presence of pes planus. Now let's move on to the exam of the knee joint itself. A good rule is, try to reproduce patient's symptoms. Evaluate the integrity of collateral ligaments by putting valgus and varus stress on the extended knee. Cruciate ligaments by using anterior, posterior drawer or Lachman test. And assess the possibility of meniscal disease by using McMurray test. Look for evidence of joint effusion. Use point of care ultrasound if available. Joint effusion can present with osteoarthritis, but also with joint infections or crystalline disease. Lastly, look at the skin for evidence of tophi, rashes that might suggest bacteremia, collagen vascular disease, or psoriatic plagues. All right, we have collected history and performed a physical exam. Is this usually enough to make the diagnosis or do we need imaging? The answer to that question will depend on what your physical exam and history indicated. If patient's history indicated acute trauma, an exam was concerning for a ligamentous injury or joint laxity, the only way to visualize the injury would be an MRI. If, on the other hand, your history and exam are more consistent with osteoarthritis, you're more likely to offer patient initial treatment with physical therapy and topical NSAIDs, and if patient continues to have pain, an X-ray may be considered to assess the degree of arthritis. Important to note that the degree of joint deformity does not always correlate with symptoms. You may have a patient who has a severe joint deformity yet has minimal symptoms and vice versa. If your patient has joint effusion, the threshold to sample synovial fluid is low, especially if there are any concerns for crystalline arthropathy or pyogenic infection such as fevers, joint warmth, IV drug use history, or presence of indwelling catheters. The fluid can be aspirated by entering the joint from the superior and medial aspect of the patella, directing the needle towards the center of the patella, aspirating as the needle is advanced. A synovial white blood cell count greater than 50,000 is highly suggestive of septic joint, although it is important to remember that gonococcal disease, prosthetic joint infection, viral infection, or partially treated bacterial infection can be seen with lower cell counts. Presence of crystals in the synovial fluid does not exclude the presence of concomitant infection. There are many reasons for knee pain, but osteoarthritis remains the most common joint disorder in the United States. Symptomatic knee osteoarthritis occurs in 10% of men and 13% of women aged 60 years or older. So let's focus the remainder of the discussion today on how to manage knee osteoarthritis when you see it in clinic next time. Lifestyle modifications remain the cornerstone of knee osteoarthritis therapy, as obesity remains one of the most common potentially modifiable risk factors for osteoarthritis. During ambulation, the knee joint must support three to five times the body weight, 
and there is fourfold reduction in the load experienced by the knee for every pound of weight loss. Depending on severity of arthritis, engaging in exercise may be difficult, so we do have to keep that in mind. Another way to offload the joint stress is comfortable shoe wear, orthotics, or a knee brace. Physical therapy is another important treatment option. In order for the patients to buy into the idea of physical therapy, it is important to thoroughly explain to them how physical therapy works. It is not meant to reverse the joint damage, but it is meant to equalize the muscle force around the joint to slow down the further wear and tear of the joint and to reduce pain. Lastly, let's talk about pharmacotherapy. Topical NSAIDs have been found to be superior to placebo. NSAIDs are generally more effective than acetaminophen. Sometimes patients' comorbidities will be the deciding factor between choosing NSAIDs versus acetaminophen for knee osteoarthritis therapy. In patients who do not achieve acceptable relief using NSAIDs, duloxetin can be tried as well. Important takeaway point is that opioids have a limited benefit in knee osteoarthritis treatment and have similar effects to NSAIDs. Supplements such as oral chondroitin and glucosamine are not currently recommended by the American College of Rheumatology due to conflicting data on its efficacy. Injectable therapies are oftentimes used as well. Corticosteroid injections offer a short-term, up to three months usually, relief of pain, but come with risk of cartilage loss, infections, pain, and bleeding at the site. Sometimes symptoms may flare up with the first 24 hours post-injection. A study by Dale et al. 2020 suggested that physical therapy was superior in controlling osteoarthritis-related knee pain when compared to one-time corticosteroid injection. There is currently no consensus on the limit of the number of injections a patient should receive. A hyaluronic acid is another injection that is sometimes used, but current evidence for its use is conflicting, and the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons recommends against its use. Surgical intervention would be considered in patients who failed all of the above therapies and have a significant limitation in ability to do their daily activities. Patient considering surgery needs to be counseled and educated that the pain may persist despite the joint replacement. That's all I have for you this week. I hope this was a good review and that you learned something new today. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you in our next episode.